Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even though I'm anti-Brexit, I'm anti-May, I'm anti-Corbyn, I'm anti-Scottish, you know, kind of, you know, the danger is you become defined by what you're against right. in a period like this. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. Westminster's Brexit crisis continues to deepen, and the mood on all sides in SW1 continues to darken. Which is why, for this week's episode of Free Exchange, my colleague John Ashmore and I decided to cheer ourselves up by talking to Matt Ford. Matt is one of Britain's leading political comedians. He hosts Unspun on Dave and his podcast The Political Party features interviews with some of the most interesting people in politics. John and I spoke to Matt about his time as a political advisor, whether it's getting harder to make jokes about politics as the debate gets nastier, and why he's fallen out of love with the Labour Party. Um, So Matt Ford, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Pleasure to be here. Um, We're here with with Matt Ford, comedian, and also John Ashmore, my colleague at CapEx. Hi, John. Hello. Um, Matt, we we meet on a, uh, you know, Dark day, one of many dark days recently in British politics, at which stage everyone is sort of equally annoyed, whether you're Labour, Tory, for or against Brexit. Um, So in these dark times, um, please, please tell me there are still some things we can make jokes about. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a ripe time for comedy, uh, particularly political comedy, which I always think kind of is as an inverse relationship with the plight of the country. When things are going well, I think it's harder to do satire. When things are going badly, it's easier because there's more, you know, incompetence and more um, red meat. And also, I think the public tune in a bit more when things are bad. When things are going well, they don't, they feel mm. they don't perhaps need to take as much notice. But a good old fashioned disaster gets everyone going. And and who do you think, in, in purely kind of comedic terms, I mean, who do you think has had a good Brexit and a bad Brexit? I mean, who are the kind of comic figures that have really risen? In oh, your that's a great question. I suppose. I mean, in, if you're talking purely career-wise, yeah. then the kind of this new breed of pundit class has had a great Brexit because there's you know so many different outlets now for people. You know, maybe two or three years ago there were standard faces you got used to seeing mm-hmm. on telly, whereas now there's so many new faces, and that's a good thing for all of us. Mm-hmm. So they've had a good Brexit. I think comedians have had a good Brexit because I get plenty of work out of it. Um, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of the political characters. I find Corbyn inherently funny. Yeah. Because I think he... And it's partly because the way he's treated by his own supporters is inherently comedic, that he's so demonstrably incompetent and incapable, and yet there is this belief that he's the Messiah. 
So that, that I just find that his relationship with his own party is fascinating and, and inherently comedic. I mean, obviously, Theresa May is just a nervous wreck. Mm. So she's a constant well of, uh, of material. Jacob Rees-Mogg is a kind of peculiar type of English eccentric. He's always a rich vein. Boris, and you have to try and... The challenge, I think, with topical comedy is to not do the same jokes that everyone else is doing. Mm. So it's kind of obvious that Boris is funny and that Rees-Mogg is funny, and it's obvious why. So you can, you can pick a bit of um, lower-hanging fruit from those trees. Um, but... I think Corbyn, I find, maybe I find Corbyn more interesting because of my own relationship with the Labour Party, but I think there are, there are fine examples of, of Dick, Chris Grayling. Yeah. And his kind of mess of a career is inherent. If Jeffrey Cox is funny, Burko. Burko, sure, I was, that was going to be my nominee. Burko yeah. is kind of, you know, I just really hope the bullying stuff isn't true. I would hate for it to be true, but if it is, you know. Yeah. John, how about you, any, any obvious candidates for... Uh... Uh, yeah, I think actually, I, I, um, I think it's difficult when you're being outbantered by life. A lot of the time, <laughs> yeah. we were talking about this earlier today. Like, there's nothing left that could shock you about the way mm. the Brexit's being conducted. It's all been such a shambles. And like you're saying, like Boris and Rhys Mogg, they're low hanging fruit. But even with Boris, like that's part of his appeal is that he's absurd. Yes. So it's kind of difficult then. It, you can't undercut something that has no status in the first place. That's right. And how do you say, or what are they going to do next? Which is kind of, you know, the easy, that sort of step one satire is, mm. they did this, what are they going to do next? When, when what they did is so ludicrous, and that's the challenge with Trump as well, is that mm. how do you make the ridiculous more ridiculous? Mm. And, and what about um, the fact that, you know, you've been doing, you've been doing political comedy in a fairly high-profile way from long before Brexit. Yeah. And do you kind of look back now on, I don't know, 2012, 2013, and think the stuff that we were sort of cracking jokes about and the sort of things that seemed absurd then are yes. now just, you know, wouldn't even make it into the paper? That is so true. And I do reflect on that sometimes and think, I was trying to convince people that politics was mad and interesting during the coalition years, which yeah. was a heck of a job when you had Cameron Clegg and Miliband knocking around. Miliband was in, you know, inherently comedic and Farage was a big character at the time. So there was still sort of big stuff going on, but not on this sort of scale. Mm. And in a way, in a way, it's just so much more exciting to do comedy now than it was then to do political comedy. But do you think, I mean, do you, both of you, do you think we've kind of lost something in the sense that, I mean, I actually coincidentally went ages and ages ago to a, a show you did with Farage in that St James's Theatre yes yeah, yeah, yeah not far from here and I mean that was a fun event he's obviously always been a controversial person but yes. it was a kind of good humoured evening with mostly London you know Londoners I'm sure most people in that audience would have gone on to vote Remain and so on yeah. um, you know do you think that like an event like that do you think that's actually possible in 2019 I mean I wonder if it's just there's so much bad blood that for some, for some people, anyway, for some, for some political figures, and you know, it's it's so divisive that you can't kind of. I, I get what you mean. I think I could still do it in my show, and I still have Brexiteers on my show. And the, you know, the, it's maybe a bit more tense now than it was because it's very real. It's not a kind of mm. minority interest or a sideshow. It's this is actually happening, um, and I think people perhaps do feel differently towards Nigel Farage than they did then. But still, I, th I think in carefully cultivated places like the show that I made deliberately to be open-minded about politics and politicians and deliberately to give a platform to various voices and engage with them in a respectful and, and 
you know, with goodwill, even if you disagree with them. So I think on, I think still at the political party night that I do, I could still probably bring Farage down. It would be a little trickier, but I think in general elsewhere, I think it would be a lot harder. I think you would have, mm. you know, a, quite a febrile audience. I think with Farage, it's that he has changed himself quite a lot since yes. he became yeah. more famous. I, mean, I interviewed him twice during the coalition years, and he was way less well-known then, and pretty good company, quite an engaging yeah, yeah, yeah. guy, you know. He didn't have this kind of slightly fascistic bent that he's taken on since, where he's kind of in league with the Trump heads and Steve Bannon and all right. that. And that's a very a good of, point. Yeah, so I don't think, I mean, he is a specific example, but yeah, I mean, think about it. I was in the lobby during the coalition years, and looking back, it was it's so vanilla compared to what yeah. politics is like now. Yes. And Twitter was less of a thing. It was still a thing, but it yeah. wasn't as constant. And Twitter was different then. And it, Twitter yeah. was kind of what Instagram is now. It was people's dinner. It was inane yeah. shit. Now it's fucking not like you're no, Islamophobia, <laughs> anti-Semitism, everything yeah. else. You know? I've noticed your Twitter's got a lot of football on it. Is, it, is that because <laughs> it's a bit of a respite from all the politics? Or? I think I'm just equally obs- obsessed with both. Yeah, so it's well, not a conscious decision. Yeah. I just I find them both. <laughs> they both give me what you know, the other one does. They're both quite tribal both pursuits. Kind of fonts of banter as well. Yes, they are, and it's quite fun to engage with people on them. And I do try, even now with politics. I mean, I must. I mute and block probably thousands of people. Oh, really? Um, are those, are those, is that football related or politics? Mostly, <laughs> mostly politics, I think. A bit of football, but mostly politics. Because I don't want to... I try not to get into rows with people. Occasionally you buy. But on the whole, I still think most people on Twitter are, are, are fine. Yeah. And let's go back a bit. I mean, you, you, unlike, I'm sure, almost every other comedian around, used to work in politics. Yes. Um, so explain for listeners your political experience and so I had a I don't I mean I I remember it so fondly I had such a wonderful time working for around the Labour Party during the Blair years initially so I worked from about the age of 18 for some local MPs I grew up in Nottingham worked for a great MP up in Sherwood called Paddy Tipping who's now the Police and Crime Commissioner for for Nottinghamshire and then you know when you first join a political party you have no idea really what a party is in the sense of its infrastructure so then I got seconded from his office to work on various by-elections, and then started working directly for the party in the East Midlands Regional Office. And the role that I had was sort of blandly entitled regional organiser. But what that entails is you have a number of key seats, marginal seats, that you have to win at the next election. You're responsible for them at a party level. On top of that, you have to know the Labour Party constitution inside out and the rule book. And particularly understanding the rule book, lots of which I've forgotten now, but crucial bits I've remembered are really relevant now that, that mm. Corbyn is running the Labour Party because he himself is in breach of God knows how many Labour yeah. Party rules. But, um, and the person doing your old job now is probably sort of agitating for deselection of various... Very possibly. Very <laughs> possibly Blair, ignoring Blair or something. Yeah, indeed. So then I worked for the party and then, and then Blair was leaving. And part of that role also was, was, was managing party conference. And then on top of that, when Blair left and Gordon took over, I was kind of... I felt like I'd done my time in that particular office and then went into local government as, a, as an advisor, specifically for the elected mayor of Stoke-on-Trent. So, outside, outside, well, indeed. I mean, so many people advise me against it. But I always want to go where the trouble is, in a way. I don't want to just work for the party in the shires and just tick over. Um, so, for those people that I'm sure don't know, and that hopefully this is most people, outside of London the elected mayoral model was offered to cities across the UK and I think only 11 or 12 
took it up. Stoke was one of them. It was on, It was also on top of that the only city that then had another referendum to abolish it. <laughs> and I was working for the mayor during that period. So you had an elected mayor that had all these powers and uh, was facing the abolition of the post itself. So unlike a re-election campaign, a totally unique set of circumstances and a very, very left-wing local Labour Party that was very uh, aggressive and a kind of new Labour mayor. So like, it was a lot of lessons were learned in a very quick time. And then after that, I got a job in public affairs down here in London, which kept me around politics, but kept me away from mm. the severe environment. Labour was becoming even then. Um, and then I just kind of phased... And then after that, I, was, I got a job in... I managed to get a show on TalkSport and knocked it on the head, and that was that. <laughs> and what do you... I mean, because I think one of the really interesting things about what you do is you, you do comedy about politics, but quite deliberately, I, I get the impression it's not kind of anti-politics. In fact, yes. it's quite the opposite. I think that's right. And I think even though I'm anti-Brexit, I'm anti-May, I'm anti-Corbyn, I'm anti-Scottish, you know, kind of, you know, the danger is you become defined by what you're against right. in a period like this. Um, but there are lots of things I disagree with in politics, but I absolutely respect the people that do it. So even if I disagree with them and think they'd be a disaster for the country or for taking the wrong decision or they've misused their office, and that I still get agitated about, I still know that the vast majority of MPs are trying to make the world a better place. And that the real divide in politics isn't between people who want to improve the world and people who don't. It's people who just have different views on how you improve it. So I just think it's... I think there's a lot of... I think it's really easy to just go, well, they're all shit, they're all corrupt, they're all rubbish. Mm. But I know that to not be the case. And I know that there are good people in every party. And I always find it really odd. And obviously I've had the benefit of experience through uh, working for Labour and then working in you know, public affairs where I met people from other parties... I've had the benefit of seeing good Tories and good Lib Dems and good SNP and, you know, good Greens and whatever else. Uh, whereas a lot of people think, well, if I'm Labour, then I've got to hate the Tory party. And I just think that's really weird um, and wrong. So I, I suppose in a way that kind of comes through. I hope it kind of comes through in the politics, in the comedy, mm. is that whilst I'm agitated, that there's still a kind of respect that underpins it. I also, um, this goes out to both of you, I, I get, kind of get the impression a lot of um, comedians... I don't have any specific examples in mind, but just generally, a lot of comedians kind of know less about politics than they think they do. Oh, man, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you say. <laughs> Sorry, um, I do... For full disclosure, I'm on the very bottom rung of the comedy ladder myself. I do, like, open mic gigs around London, and a lot of people do extremely half-arsed political stuff where it's like they might have read a few headlines and stand first, and that's about as far as it goes. Um, there are some exceptions. There are some. I've seen some brilliant people, but generally, it's just, oh, Trump's orange. You know, yeah, yeah. what Brexit's a shit show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a lack of like craft. But I think, I mean, present company accepted. There aren't that many, that many people doing the satire thing that well in the UK anymore. Like when when we were growing up, it was like Rory Bremner absolutely smashing it oh, every single week, just was like amazing. perfectly pitched. And I don't, I don't know if there is that kind of show. Now, I think there's still topical stuff out there. There's still talented topical comedians, but I think, I think what happened was, that, you know, it's no secret that most performers are probably labour inclined, perhaps in the comedy world. Now there are exceptions to that. People like Jeff Norcott and I know yeah. other right wing comics who maybe are conservative voters but don't do material at all that's political. Um, however, I think. For the kind of Blair years, for want of a better shorthand, most people thought politics was kind of okay and didn't engage with it. Then all of a sudden, it's blown up. 
and they, they weren't concentrating in the years when the seeds of this stuff were sown. So their analysis, some of them, and I don't have anyone specific in mind, but I just think in general, I think it's a societal problem that most people weren't tuned in. Then it's all kicked off and people are now trying to understand what, where, where, where has all this come from, what the roots of Brexit, Corbyn and everything else. And I don't, I, I, comedy's not immune to that. But presu- presumably another of the challenges is, is partly to do with social media as well, because, I mean... I mean, for instance, I definitely remember watching Have I Got News For You yeah. kind of pre-social media. And that was, you know, it felt like there was all this untapped material from the ah, week yes. that was ready ready for the experts to, to delve into. And I feel like now it's much more a question of, like, ordinary punters out there making wisecracks about politics. Then it kind of rises to the top on Twitter. I wonder, if, do you feel like as a comedian sort of threatened by the fact that you know any old joke can make a funny joke and and you know you haven't got that sort of not really privileged position that comedians used to have no i still think people want to see full routines you know twitter is brevity so it's yeah. good for one liners and you see some great jokes who doesn't want to see a good joke so um i don't think it's just, i don't think people have stopped going to comedy because they can right. just sit at home and hit and refresh um, and the challenge then, obviously, is to do stuff that you couldn't get on Twitter. So, if anything, it makes you sharpen yourself a bit. Um, so, I, I, I don't think it's a threat. I don't see it as a threat. I mean, maybe some people do. Maybe if you were a one-liner comedian, you might think, fucking hell, you know, a lot of these jokes are out there. Yeah. I think it's really... For for people who do one-liners, it's a great test bed as well. Because they can it's just brilliant. punt stuff out there yeah. and then just be like, is that funny? Yeah. And what <laughs> it's really good for is that occasionally people are funny. Yeah. And Twitter allows, you know, somebody who's not a comedian to go, thought of a really good joke, and yeah. it can go viral, and that's brilliant. But, I mean, I guess also what I meant is partly that things happen, especially at the moment in the UK, things are sort of happening so quickly. I mean, I can imagine if I was trying to sit down and write a, a, a set for a stand-up show, for, I mean, not that I've ever done that, thing, but, but <laughs> if, I, if I had to, you know, a funny joke about something very topical, it, you know, we're on this, like, accelerating kind of yes. cycle where... You know, stuff that didn't happen that happened fairly recently seems like sort of ancient history. You know, pre whether it's pre Boris resigning or pre whatever it is. You know, yeah, that's true. So, do you feel the pressure to kind of really have to like strike while the iron is hot on on this stuff? Yes, or? but then you kind of, as with anything, I think, and probably the same with creative arts, would the same in, would be the same in journalism and, and what you do is. Over time, then, you take a broader view. Mm. So you can do gags about what's happened that day, but you can only do that for a couple of minutes. And it's quite a novelty to start off with something that's happened. Also, never underestimate how little people are paying attention. So for those of us that are on Twitter all day and are obsessed with politics, we think, oh, my God, this is the biggest thing. And then you go to a comedy club and people are like, sorry, who is Chris Grayling? Mm. You know? Although I do think that's actually one of the really interesting things about the last couple of years in politics is how, many, how much so many people know all of a sudden. I mean... I think, I think the referendum I noticed when I was covering it, you know, I'm not saying everyone was right about. I mean, people get things all sorts. I mean, people get stuff wrong about various Brexit options all the time. But there was a leveling of engagement at the time of the referendum that surprised me. Um, yeah. And I think now you get, you know, I get sort of relatives and friends and stuff talking about, you know, frankly, people who were obscure backbenchers that they would have had. You know, they, these people probably couldn't name more than five cabinet ministers not that long ago. You know, I, I do think that people are really like... I mean, you said earlier that the sort of worse it gets, the more attention people pay. Yes. And, and I think... But that's still within a relative group. Of, that's yes, still, yeah, like, yeah. compared to the population. Yeah, 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 yeah. So people are maybe more tuned in. People know what Brexit is in the sense that we're going to leave. Um, but then it, it, I think all you've done so is sort of grow the number of obsessives, maybe. Yeah. The wider public is still... 
But are you, are you and this is maybe getting a bit into the weeds, but are you writing, you're, are you sort of writing with a kind of political audience in mind? I mean, um, how many sort of... How, that's a really good question. If there's a list of names of politicians, you know, how is, presumably you get to a level where you're like, this is funny, but no one knows who um, Mike Gapes is. He's <laughs> <laughs> got a great name there. But, I mean, the thing is as well, you can all, I always try and make it really accessible, so not right. in the sense that it's crap, although, you know, that's subjective. I'm sure some of your listeners would think it is. But in the sense that you don't have to know everything in order to get it. I would never want it to feel exclusive or... or Insidery. In, or... Yeah, exactly. Um, so you can cover the ground quickly. You can still sort of explain who people are a bit, but you obviously don't want to be wasting your time in a joke with too much information. So it's about getting... I mean, it's not way, you know, quite boring technical thing, but I was trying, in an Edinburgh show, for instance, that's yeah. now, or on a tour show that's an hour and a half, I'll try and sort of clump jokes together. I always start with a joke first, and then clump them around themes, and then try and make a general point at the top, and then just have a load of jokes, mm-hmm. and try and structure it like that. So I give people information. Mm-hmm. But, you know, anyone who's done comedy, and you'll know this, is the moment you start talking without a laugh, there is like an internal timer in the audience's mind. And the further you're going without a laugh, that is ticking, t- and you better get on with it. So that, you know, I can, I can use it, I can, after huge laughs, hopefully, after the rolling laughter and applause has yeah, died down. never ending. I can then just buy a bit of time to set something up, an idea, but that's going to be, you know, the last time I was doing stuff about the SNP Sustainable Growth Commission, and you kind of have to set, there's no short way of doing, there yeah. are shorter ways of doing it, but you have to kind of explain what that is, right. otherwise the jokes don't make sense. So I kind of buy a bit. I buy periods of time where I can explain, and then I just have to rattle through gags. Oh, that's yeah. yeah. I think so John then, Oliver's quite good at that on his show. Yes, because he's only, obviously he has the benefit of graphics, but the stuff he's talking about, he goes right the way through, like a kind of I don't know, like a federal environmental policy. Yeah, yeah. 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 but there's gag, gag, gag all the way along. It's yes. quite interesting to see. You have to keep the, there is a ratio that you have to sort of keep to. What is your like? Without giving too much away, but like, I mean, do you write every single day? Do you read the papers every morning and think, is there something I can use here, or is it is that too intensive? Um, so I'll go through periods. So what I do is I've got a monthly gig, the political party that I do around the corner, and for that I always write a new twenty minutes of material. So I write a new twenty every month. Um, I will often write that in the three days leading up to the gig. So the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I'll do it on the on the, on the Wednesday night. Um, so that's a minimum of three days. So that's roughly one day a week minimum, really, because I'll, I'll write at other times as well, because I'll have other stuff to write for. So I'm probably writing, very worst-case scenario, one full day a week, usually two or three, possibly more. Mm. So it's almost a full-time job, just writing. And most of it will be awful, but it, it will boil down to some funny ideas. And I just think... I, the thing is, I check all these websites anyway. I'm going on the BBC website, the Telegraph website, Politics Home, Guido. CapEx, obviously. CapEx, of course. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, you're fishing around in all these waters anyway. Yeah. So then I'm constantly just going over it. It's almost like I'm still work in politics. I'm just constantly consuming it and sending emails to myself or making notes on my phone of ideas of gags and things. And I just think, unless you're fully immersed in it, there's almost like, there's, I mean, I'm obviously no expert on the brain, but I think the more you're constantly thinking about something, themes sort of develop in your subconscious and you start to link these things together. And unless you're consuming it all the time, mm. I think you miss stuff and you don't... There's also a thing of figuring out what you really think about something. So I know I'm against Brexit, but there's a lot more thinking to be done on that subject about what sort of, you know... Brexit, what I would want, or is there anything I would compromise on, and what would it be? And then there's comedic things, you know, you, you can think of, well, if they gave me that, then I'd vote for it, and that can be a kind of silly transactional thing about, 
you know, a burger or some food or whatever, you know, whatever it would appeal to you or, and, and play to your character. So then it, you kind of, I always think I've got to think politically and then instead of coming up with policy ideas, I'm going to be punchlines. Mm. So it's almost like... But do you have that thing? I mean, I've always, I've always, yeah, I, I know what you mean. And I, I've always had that kind of, even though I obviously work in Westminster and edit CapEx, which is an incredibly political job as these things yeah. go. Um, I'm always very turned off by people who cannot stop thinking about politics. <laughs> not, not, not in the sense of being interested in politics. Yes actual politics but yeah. you know you can't kind of eat a sandwich without the kind of politics of what's in that sandwich or every yes. decision is a political decision so do you guys find that you know if you're in that mindset of like looking for political material that you're sort of it, that it's too much that it's too much there's too much politics in your I, in your life or? Uh, that's a really good question I probably am too obsessed not to the sandwich extent yeah but um, I, I I do almost sometimes have like deliberate time away from it so I just think I'm thinking about this all the time and it's knackering mm. regardless of whether it's Brexit or whatever just I don't know if you feel the same um, I sort of took up comedy as a respite from politics <laughs> I've only really written about ten minutes of stuff that's about politics at all I think partly because it's sort of like it's too much like the day job if you're going to do something. As a, uh, yes. For me, I'm, I'm obviously no, I'm nowhere near the Matt Ford level of actually doing it for a living. Oh, I think for me, it's like a hobby and something fun. Um, and it's the same way as like earlier on in, in my career, I considered being a sports journalist, but then I was like, it, it's kind of the reverse. That would ruin my my other great passion, which is football. Ah, that's and, a really uh, good point. So I try and kind of delineate the bits, um, and then the other thing of just I find a lot of. Um, political comedy quite hack. Looked <laughs> right at me when you said that. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I, just for the record, I did not. Um, at the sort of open mic level, you, you only looked get, at me actually. Yeah. <laughs> you only get um, you only get five minutes, so that sort of lends. You haven't got time to explain the exactly the SMP growth plan. And exactly, you can't really lay much of a foundation for what you're saying or do. It with a great true. deal of subtlety. Um, I mean, some people are very skilled and do, but. Uh, yeah, I'm, I tend to avoid politics. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
So just to move things away from comedy a bit, and um, Matt, you're, as you've hinted at, a Labour la- labor man. Ex-Labour um, man. <laughs> and I think you describe yourself as sort of vaguely Blairite. Oh, not vague at all. Unapologetically no, Blairite. Blairite. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. um, So explain to me kind of, explain to me your current thinking on the Labour Party. I mean, do you... Okay, okay. But I'll ask a specific question. That was it. Um, that was, um, do you, okay, I'll put it this way. Do you think the Labour Party is, from your point of view, kind of a salvageable thing? Like, have you given up on the Labour Party or do you still think it's something that has a future you could, you know, you could support? I've given up on it in the sense that I left. I left the day that Corbyn became leader and that was based on the experience that I had working for the party of those sorts of politicians and those sorts of movements and what they do to the Labour Party. Um, and also I just didn't agree with most of it and I'd been kind of edging out the door during the Miliband years anyway so I was kind of it was, it was sort of moving away from me um, I, I mean I, I, at the moment it just doesn't feel salvageable and that's partly because of the rule changes that the unions don't have you know the unions actually throughout Labour's history you know, there's a perception that the unions are on the left of the party and, and they sort of work against the right but at various points in Labour history they've been an important tool in removing uh, leaders, that lever is gone. The electoral college is gone. So, really, the only way you could save the Labour Party at the moment, if you think it needs saving, is to find three to four hundred thousand people <laughs> to join it <laughs> and all vote all the, for get all the, the country's centrist dads into. Yeah, exactly. Really so, and, and do they want to? And, and uh, I just, the, the, in the sense that it's salvageable, is that there are, that it still has some excellent MPs. Mm. Many of whom are good friends of mine who are talented, who could absolutely be put at the service of the nation, could be Prime Minister, people like Hilary Benn and Yvette Cooper. Uh, others like Peter Carl, Toby Perkins, Alison McGovern, Liz Kendall. The, the parliamentary bench of the Labour Party are bursting with talent. And yeah, <laughs> that's what really frustrates me. Just not the front bench. No. And it's, well, yeah, indeed. And so there is, there's still that, res- that as long as they're still there, mm. there is some hope. But I'm afraid it, it's, it's so faint. And, 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 and so, you, but you're not sort of enthusiastically pro the independent group or change or whatever they call. You know. I mean, that, to be honest, that's the most exciting thing for me that's happened in the last few years mm. is that they, I, you can spend all this time talking about oh, the parties are going to split. There's going to be a break, and part of you thinks, well, is it ever going to happen? Is anyone going to get? Is anyone going to have the guts to do it? So when they left the Labour Party, I thought that was a good thing, and then a few Tories joined. You think, well, this is now something more exciting. This is a different proposition. I want them to do well, um, but obviously they need the sort of they need the time to set out what their policies are going to be. But I think as an idea, and maybe it's who knows what happens to them, mm. but what they represent is is where I am politically, and that at least, if for no other reason than finally you feel that you've got a voice in Parliament right, as right. a collective, however small, yeah. and that at least is reassuring. Strong on defence, you know. This is the thing as well where people say. And maybe change UK people would disagree with me, but when people go, well, they haven't got any values. They're like, they've got values. There's not any policies yet. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, they're obviously strong on public, you know, relatively centre left on public services, strong on defence, tough on crime, uh, pro um, the EU, pro the UK, I, I, as in not leaving the EU and, and not Scotland leaving the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's sort of back of the fag packet, quick stuff. You know, I think most people would get that that's where they were, and for whatever reason. Those values haven't, or I don't feel those values have been necessarily, you know, vocal or, or in the leadership of either two of the main leaders. And do you? I mean, you, I, I guess you're kind of unusual in, in in that you quit kind of the day Corbyn was elected. Rather, yeah. I mean, I think some people sort of toughed it out a bit. Before. Yes. Um, but has it kind of gone? 
you know, is it is it sort of broadly as you expected it would be, or I mean, has it gone worse than you thought it would be with with Corbyn uh, at, at it, the helm? Or it's kind of gone. You know, uh, there's nothing worse in politics. People say, "No, I told you so," but this was all inevitable with yeah. Corbyn. This is how the hard left behave, mm. and they masquerade as kindly, gently. And you know, this is the thing as well: is there are a lot of very well-meaning people caught up in all this who genuinely... The world is unfair. It is unequal. Britain does need to change a lot of the way that it does things. I don't disagree with that. I get the anger. I feel it myself. But there are... <laughs> what Corbyn would do is... Would, would, would actually, in my view, decimate working communities. I think he's a guaranteed recession, I think, in terms of our security as a country. I'd really worry about it. The future of the country, the UK as an entity, I'd worry about. I think he's ambivalent about Scottish independence. He's a Brexiteer, which I disagree with. So in terms of the other values that go with it, they're big priorities for me, and I think they're big priorities for the people. So all the kind of infighting was inevitable. The anti-Semitism is incredible and real. Mm. But that surely must have surprised... I mean, I did not see that coming. I I can see why it exists, but that is a... You know, that the the scale and, and, and the sort of... Constant inability to actually deal with the problem as well is is incredibly revealing, I think. I don't think people quite realise the waters in which Jeremy Corbyn swam. Yes. Which, when you think about it, there is an there are anti-Semitic tropes in that part of the left wing that go back to like Trotsky. Yes. Um, And those are the kind of people he hangs around with, and Mm. he might not be an explicit anti-Semite, but I think he buys into this idea that there are. Jewish financial interests and the, yes. the American government, APAC and things like this, yeah, yeah. To, you know, steer Israel and Middle East. This whole kind of, you know, set of beliefs. Yeah. As well as Rothschild internet conspiracies and all that right, sort of crankery exactly. that goes along yeah. with it. As well as a worldview that he wants us out of NATO. He doesn't really like the United States. You know, his worldview is... Uh, the British Empire and, and the Americans caused all this trouble, and everything is a reaction against that. So that excuses all sorts of disgusting behaviour in all sorts of different parts of the world. And he hasn't really got a narrative on that, other than it wouldn't have happened if Britain hadn't have done this. If it wasn't for the Empire in America, but if it wasn't for the Empire in the war in Iraq, everything, the world would be fine. It was like know, Nirvana before that. Exactly, and it just totally ignores um, a, a lot of you know radical Islamic stuff. It ignores a lot of um, uh, extremism on the left. And absolutely, the people that he's been prepared to sit down and talk with. And what's really interesting is, the way that he became leader, and the the tone of that, I knew so many people that aren't Corbynistas at all, but going, watching those Labour leadership debates the first time round, going, well, he's the only one talking any sort of sense or clarity. Right. Um, What I was trying to explain to me was, there's a reason for that, is this is all he's ever said, and he's polished these words. And yes, there was a cultural problem with the way that the Labour Party spoke Mm. at that time, at the upper levels. Um, but I think people just overlooked it. I think people just thought, you know what, I don't care if you met with IRA, Hamas and Hezbollah. Most people aren't that aware of what Hamas and Hezbollah are anyway. And we're just like, well, we need a left-wing leader who's going to take it to the Tories. And they just overlooked and forgave stuff that they, I think, on the whole, probably weren't really that, in, you know, genned up on. And now they're going, fuck, I defended this guy. I wanted him. And I personally have overlooked all this shit. Mm. And they can't say they weren't told. And that's for, that's difficult for people. Mm. If you want people to kind of change their mind and come over and become, you know... But that was, I mean, moderate. it wasn't just the leadership. That was one of the really frustrating things about the 2017 election was that, you know, all this stuff, which in my book is like disqualifies you from high office, right, was just became this thing of like, oh, they would say that, wouldn't they? You know, it's kind of a tired Tory yes. attack line. And 
I still haven't fully got my head around why he sort of how he sort of managed to get away with that. I think part of the problem is that the public is just slowly waking up to what Corbyn is. So initially they were like, well, this guy's a kind of allotment-dwelling jam freak. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, so it was kind of kindly old guy. Then it was kind of weird old guy a little bit, but essentially a good bloke, but maybe not competent. Now it's kind of waking up to, is this bloke anti-Semitic? And we're all going to make our own decisions on that. But why is he hanging around? The, and it's just sort of slowly... I think maybe the way in which the attack was handled was probably too over the top. But then I think, how can you be too over the top about hanging around with people like that? I kind of then think, well, maybe you should totally, you know, you have a responsibility to tell the public about stuff like yeah. this. I think the, I think the, the most potent attack will be if Labour itself says, you know, leading Labour people say, this is very, you know, leading Labour people that Corbyn people like say, actually, this is a problem. Mm. Whether that happens or not, I, I don't think so. I think it's about where it comes from is, is crucial. Just going back to, so we're going to end on a, such a somber. Oh God, I feel like it's been really. Go, go uh, back to some comedy <laughs> stuff. Have you, do you ever? Do you ever? Um, I mean, because you're you're sort of completely unapologetic about where you're coming from politically, and you're yeah. a stand up. Um, first, well, it's a two part question. Part one is: do you, Was there any sort of thought process behind that? That, that where you mean where you were sort of a bit worried about revealing your own kind of views? Not really, no, because I just think. I think I'm too... One of the reasons why I'm not cut out for politics and chose political comedy instead, um, in, in as much as it was a choice, is I can't not say what I think. Mm-hmm. I don't have the discipline to be a politician or really a political advisor. So, uh, And I also think, as long as you're fairly respectful about what other people think and you're not going, Tories are evil, or if you support Corbyn, you're thick... As long as you're saying, like, I disagree with it and here's some comedic reasons why, mm-hmm. I think people can absolutely live with watching a performer they fundamentally disagree with but think he does a good Donald Trump impression right. or whatever. Well, and I get loads of Brexiteers come in to see me on tour. I get loads of really left-wing people come in and, you know, they might find the Corbyn section the least funny bit, but they love the stuff about Boris, they love the stuff about Trump, and they can, you know, most people, even as ideological as people are, most people are absolutely fine and can laugh at themselves. And that's what will save us all. Well, part two was going to be, do you get sort of political heckling at your political comedy show? Yeah, so I do. But in a way that's really quite sweet. And so there was a, in Corby the other week, there was a bloke on the front row who was just killing himself. You know, was really, I'm not bigging myself up by saying this. He was enjoying it more than anyone else in the room. And uh, just from looking at him, I thought, yeah, he's gonna be he's gonna be he's gonna be a Blairite, this fellow. I said, Oh, fellow Blairite. He was like, No, 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 I I run the local like leave means leave thing. He was <laughs> He was this like arch Brexiteer, you know, he thought Theresa May was a socialist, you know. And he but he was just loving it. And yeah. he, he was having a wonderful time. So I just think um I so I get those so he chipped in about something and he really knew his stuff. Yeah. I will occasionally what you do realise is I get the I don't really get heckles. People sort of agree or they'll kind of disagree. And then we, you know, in a very in a very um, uh, polite way, is what I've really noticed is the difference in different political communities and when they can and can't take a joke. So, mm. I did an event, uh, it was a corporate event at the Carlton Club a few years ago. So it's coalition years. I got booked by a guy for his birthday. So I thought, right, I'll open up with you know all the Labour stuff because I love that being Tories, and then I'll move on to a few. Tory bits and the Labour bit was sort of going okay the moment I started taking the mick out of Boris Haig and Howard and Duncan Smith they were like banging the tables and that's what they, they wanted to have the piss taken out of themselves Yeah, yeah. which is something I've never seen before 
usually people are more sensitive about what they think. Mm. So I think that it, I think Tories are kind of quite good at laughing at themselves, and I just think socially they're kind of whether they're in they're government kind of, or they're not. Sort of, they're sort of used to it. I think yeah, but they kind of they kind of accept their kind of the baddies for want of a better glib phrase. They right. kind of go, oh "God, I'm the Tory," that you know. Yeah. Um, also, just in terms of the last year, a few years, I've done Edinburgh every year for about the last nine, was around the 2014 independence referendum. Scottish independence supporters were definitely, when I got onto the referendum bit, that was like the kind of tense bit. <laughs> Not in a nasty way, but just like they go, oh, oh God, don't take the mick out of that. We like that. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, and now it's kind of the Corbyn group is, the Corbyn section is the bit, oddly, recently in London, that's been almost the highlight of the show, but in different places... People go, oh, I didn't realise you were going to take the mick out of Jeremy. You know, it's kind of it's a bit of a Same job Jeremy yeah. Been... yeah, and you have to be very careful. And I always just think, I would never want to do anything lazy or or, or hack or or that felt gratuitous. So I'm never going to lay into him. It's never going to be like a character assassination. But I did material about that mural in East London and his comments on Facebook about it. You know, conversations that Jewish community leaders have had with him and things like that. Kind of informative stand-up. And so that I can definitely always say I've been fair and what have I said that's factually incorrect? And they can never... You know, so, and also, this is relative tension. You know, this isn't mm-hmm. like... No one's throwing punches. No one's there, throwing anything. anything or anything like that. But you just feel it in the room. You do feel... You go, all oh, right, OK, I better get on with this bit because I'm going to lose them otherwise. You know? And is Brexit kind of a... Uh, how how, how has it got? Have you noticed a change over the, kind of the last couple of years or is it um, as a subject? I, mean, I think... No, in all honesty, and I've gigged in leave places, remain places, all this. Now, obviously, I'm a remainer, so maybe even in a leave area, I'm going to have more remain people coming. So who knows? And I never, right. I never polled the audience, partly because <laughs> the whole show's about how binary choices are a bad idea, and then I'm not going to take my own plebiscite. But um, <laughs> uh, whether they leave or remain, I just think... Maybe there's a certain sort, sort of person who goes to watch political comedy. I don't right. know. But I think, on the whole, people are... At, People are more than capable of being a lever, coming to the show and enjoying it, being a Corbynist and, and enjoying it and whatever else. And that's not me trying to self-promote. I just yeah. think it's an interesting thing. That, you know, in the end, if there are any um, seeds of hope in this area we're living in, most people are brilliant and uh, they can laugh at themselves and they can have a good night out even listening to someone for an hour and a half they totally disagree with. And that's a, that's a good, healthy sign for the future. Well, I mean, that seems like a heartening place to be. So, John Ashmore, Matt Ford, thanks a lot. Thank you. That was Matt Ford on Political Comedy. If you like what you heard, tickets are available now for his new show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, at the Bloomsbury Theatre on the 25th of May. Thanks for listening.